Many uh, years back, I decided to take on uh, a project restoring an old 1969 Chevy Longhorn one-ton C30 pickup truck. Some guy had found it out in a field near Harrow rotting away, and he pulled it out of the field, and um, he had it up for sale. So I bought this truck, and I took it back to my house, and, and the thing was an absolute wreck. So I had to pull out a bunch of stuff and throw it away. I had to dismantle the entire truck. I had it in boxes and on skids around my garage. I had to cut off all kinds of the body metal and re-weld it and put the truck back together. But before I restored the truck, keep in mind, I had to get violent with that truck. I had to take things out and throw them away. I had to pound away at the frame with the hammer to knock off all the rust. I had to spray down the engine with some degreaser in order to kind of clean it up so you could actually see what was there. I had to get violent with the truck before I was able to put it back together. And when I put it back together, of course, I restored it to some of its former glory. Now, uh, the tail end of that story is it was super uncomfortable to drive. So I drove it for like 100 kilometers and I sold it to a guy in Quebec and haven't seen it since. But the, the moral of that episode is this, that when something is broken, when something is rotten, when something isn't right, you often have to lay hands on it. You have to get violent with it. You have to pound away at it. You have to cut into it. You have to carve out the rust and get rid of the dirt in order to restore that thing to its former glory. Now, in theological terms, in our lives, we call that sanctification. God wants us to grow up and to become more and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like I owned that truck, I had a piece of paper that said I owned that truck. When Jesus Christ bought you, he bought you with his own blood. He owns you as a Christian. But we're not perfect yet. We still have rottenness in our lives. There's things that we think about that are wrong. There's things that we say that are inappropriate. There's attitudes that we have in our hearts that are sinful. But God is so committed to our ultimate sanctification and restoration that he's not afraid to discipline us. He's not afraid to put us through some painful circumstances in order that we might grow up to become more and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the reasons in scripture why God allows his people to suffer. Maybe you've experienced some suffering in your life, some pain, some challenges, some trials. And you've thought to yourself, God, if you're so good and you love me so much, why have you allowed me to go through such trial and tribulation? Now, there's many reasons why God allows that, but we've been studying as a church, the book of Habakkuk. I actually selected seven books from the Bible this year that I've never preached from before that are kind of obscure books. I know many of you have said, I've never read Nahum. I've never read Obadiah. I've never read Habakkuk. But we're studying those books and other books because we believe that all of God's word is profitable for our training in righteousness. And in the book of Habakkuk, what Habakkuk the prophet does is he puts into words to God what many of us are thinking about. Because I know that we live in a difficult world. And because we live in a difficult world, I know that many of you have asked questions like this. Lord, why do you allow people to suffer? 
Lord, I've committed my life to you. Why do you allow me to suffer? Why are you, why do you seem to be disciplining me? And Habakkuk asks those questions in chapters one and two, primarily. And then in chapter three, which we're going to get to in weeks to come, he praises God because he's experienced a fresh encounter with God. But again, before that, which is broken can be repaired and we're all a little bit broken. The decay must be removed. So just by way of a review, last week I preached from chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And in that portion of the Bible, Habakkuk asks the question, God, why does it seem that you're so passive towards evil? Like, look at the stuff going around, going on around us. Why do you not seem to care? And God speaks back to Habakkuk and he essentially says, I'm not passive. I'm not passive at all. You would be surprised at what I'm doing among the nations. And one of the things I'm doing among the nations, and this, this was like kind of, I think, a, a bit of a shock to Habakkuk, and it might be a bit of a surprise to you too, is God said, I'm actually raising up, I'm elevating an evil nation, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Like, why would, why would you do that? I'm raising them up and I'm going to send them to actually attack my people. And you're like, what? Why would you do that? I'm going to send them to attack my people because there's sin in your lives. There's still brokenness in your lives. And, and I want to carve out the rust. I want to carve out the sin. I want to carve out the obedience. You know, God is so committed to his people that he will even allow us to be hurt at times in order for us to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of those examples in the Bible where when you hear it, you're thinking, that doesn't make sense. Why would a gracious and loving God hurt us? Why would a gracious and loving God discipline us? Again, because he wants to carve out any lingering elements of bitterness or sin or pride or idolatry or shame that we're Christians. He wants to carve that out and he wants to get rid of it. And here's how this so often works. And you know this to be true. We tend to listen a whole lot more and we tend to read our Bibles a whole lot more. And we tend to pray a whole lot more when life is difficult, but when life is easy and no one's persecuting us and no one's challenging us, we can just kind of, whistle a merry tune and go through life and accomplish very little. Well, this leads to Habakkuk's second question. So in Habakkuk, we talk about Habakkuk's first complaint. That was last week. Today, we're going to discuss Habakkuk's second complaint. And his second complaint is essentially the question, why would God use really bad people to discipline us? So chapter one, Why are you allowing us to suffer, Lord? You seem so passive. You're not doing anything. You're idle. God's like, oh, I'm at work. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come and discipline you. So this raises a second question, a natural question. God, um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm not fully obedient to you. Maybe I've, I've sinned a little bit as one of your sons or one of your daughters. Maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I'm not like Jesus, but why would you take people that are worse than us? that don't even acknowledge you and use them to discipline us. 
I mean, is that not a a legitimate question that Habakkuk asks? He asks it. Many of us think about it at times. And we learn here in the Bible how honest the Bible is. God is not afraid to have questions asked of him. You can ask God any question you want. Here's what you need to know about God. God is not a slick politician that's going to tell you what you want to hear. God will always tell you what you need to hear, even if it hurts a little bit. That's how much he loves you because he wants you and he wants me as a broken man, as a sinful man. He wants me to grow up and I have a lot of brokenness in my own life. God wants me to grow up to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the message we're going to hear today might hurt, but I need to hear this message if I'm to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the truth that God tells us. I'm going to start reading Habakkuk chapter one, verse 12 and following. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy one. He acknowledges in his question that God is eternal. He's everlasting. He's his Lord, meaning that he's his master and that God is absolutely holy. And then he goes on to say, we shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So there's there's two different groups of people that Habakkuk is speaking about in this passage. First, he starts off by talking about God's people. Now, under the old covenant, God's people were the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham. Do you remember that? Way back earlier in the Bible, God came and he picked out some obscure man by the name of Abram. He had traveled from Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, where he was born, down into what would become the promised land where Israel would live for generations and still lives today. He picked out this obscure man and he said, by my grace, I'm going to make a perpetual covenant with you. Your offspring will be as the stars of the heavens. Now that was kind of weird because at that time, Abram was very old and him and his wife had a grand total of zero children. But God later solved that problem. God says, I'm going to make an eternal covenant with you. I'm going to bless your physical offspring and your physical offspring are going to be a blessing to the nations. Now we know that the ultimate example of that was Jesus Because Jesus was in his humanity was one of the physical offspring of Abraham. And we've all been blessed Jews and Gentiles alike by Jesus. But then that's the, the unconditional part of God's covenant. There was also a conditional part added to it. And God's like, Hey, if you want to enjoy life in this world, if you want to be safe, if you want to be fruitful, if you want plenty of food, you need to obey me. And I have some rules that I want to give you. You need to obey me. And if you disobey me, you're going to be cursed. But if you obey me, you're going to be blessed. So time and time again, under the old covenant, we read the Old Testament of our Bible, the people obey and God blesses. They disobey and they are disciplined. They obey and they're blessed. They disobey and they're disciplined. When Habakkuk wrote this book, God was about to unleash great discipline upon his people, the Southern tribes of Judah, because of their rebellion against God. But even in all this, Habakkuk knew that God never breaks his promises. 
I was very moved this morning as we sang some songs and as Sarah read some scriptures that talk about the promises of God. I might make a promise to you and then I realize I don't have the capacity to fulfill that promise. I'm sorry. Or I might make a promise to you and I just forget. I'm going to call you this afternoon and I forget to call you. But God never breaks his promises. And Habakkuk, even as he heard God say, I'm going to send a nation to discipline you. He's like, well, we shall not die. Why was he able to say that? Because he knew that even though individuals in Israel would die when the Babylonians came in, God would be true to his promise to Abraham and his people would last, would endure. But the second group of people that he's speaking of here are the evildoers that God had ordained. Think about that word. God had pre-ordered, God had established, God had organized an evil nation and they would come to be God's hands of, look at the text, judgment and reproof. God would judge his people for their rebellion and he would reprove them, meaning correct them, rebuke them for their sins. You know, when we think about the attributes of God, as Habakkuk thought about, we think about the fact God is everlasting. He's our master. He's absolutely holy. We too can be reminded that even when God is disciplining us, God will stay true to his promises. God's people are secure in God's promises because of God's grace. If God says, you're my son, or you're my daughter, God's never going to take that back. He may discipline you, but if you truly are a son or daughter of God, and we acknowledge that many people fake it and aren't really true believers, but if you truly are a son or daughter of God, it's because God has graciously sought you out and he will secure you in his own presence. The seed promise of Abraham would prevail. So with this in mind, then Habakkuk accepts that the Babylonians would be used to refine Judah, but that they were also a nation that were established for reproof and judgment. Now this reminds us that while God is sovereign over all things, when God is about to do something, guess who he typically uses? Who are God's tools? He uses people. He uses his church to preach the gospel. The Bible says if people don't hear about it, if a preacher's not sent, how are they going to hear? God uses his people to preach the gospel. God doesn't go around evangelizing people by himself typically. He uses us. He calls us to share the gospel. And likewise, when God disciplines us, he often uses political systems. He uses circumstances. He uses weather in the Bible to discipline his people. God uses people and the physical environment that we live in to bring discipline into our lives. So then there's part two of um, Habakkuk's question to God. In verse 13, it says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So what is that all about? Habakkuk is thinking to himself, okay, so God's going to send the Babylonians in to discipline us, but they're going to do great evil. So then this thought crosses his mind. Oh yeah, but God is holy. Why would God allow himself to see violence? 
Why would God allow himself to see great evil? He says, you're pure, God. You cannot look at wrong. So then he asks the question, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I mean, yeah, I know I have sin in my life, but I'm one of your children. Why would you use someone that's not even one of your children to do great evil against me? Why would you allow atheists and secularists to abuse and persecute the church of Jesus Christ? That's a modern question. Why would you allow evil people to govern nations? Why would you want to even set your eyes on that, Lord? Why don't you just wipe them out? I mean, you who are of purer eyes, why do you allow this kind of thing to take place? Don't you think that Habakkuk's a lot like us? Because I'm asking the same questions, like 26, 2700 years after Habakkuk wrote this. I'm asking the same questions. Lord, if you're all powerful and you're all loving, why would you allow all this craziness, all this stinking thinking, all this ignorance, all these lives to be taken? Why would you allow the world to be so broken when you are holy and you can't even look at sin or evil? He goes on to say, you made mankind like the fish of the sea. So God's a creator. He's going to use an illustration. We're like fish. So here we are swimming around this sea of humanity, this big school of fish. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. But then he starts to speak of the Babylonian king that's going to come to wreak havoc upon God's people. And there he writes, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Again, Habakkuk is asking the questions that we're thinking about. Okay, I get it. We need discipline. But you're the creator. We're like fish. Why would you allow this evil king to come with his nets and throw the nets out and capture all kinds of nations and all kinds of countries and be absolutely without grace and without mercy in his treatment of other people? And that's exactly what the Babylonian king did, by the way. He conquered the known world at the time. Assyria had been the superpower prior. Now Babylon rose up and became like the superpower nation. And they were a godless nation. They were not holy. They actually worshipped a fish god. Which kind of ties into the analogy here. When they won, they attributed their success to fake gods. To idols. Habakkuk's like, why, why would you allow that to happen? Questions that flow out of this are as follows. Number one, why do you permit yourself to look at wrong, God? Really, this is a, a pretty important question. The question that we tend to ask first is the question, why are we suffering? Isn't that the question we tend to ask first? Why, why am I suffering? But a question that is actually 
a more appropriate question, a more God-centered question is, God, why do you allow yourself to suffer blasphemy? Why do you allow yourself to suffer the disgrace of people saying you don't exist? When an atheist opens his mouth and says, I don't believe in God. Why don't you just send in a lightning bolt right away and zap. That's the end of another atheist. When someone creates an image or an idol and starts to worship it and they start to bow down, why don't you just like bang their head off the floor? How do you like worshiping that? Why do you allow yourself to suffer blasphemy, God? This is the question that Habakkuk asks. And it demonstrates a certain respect for God and a desire to see God elevated. Various aspects of the fishing here depict, again, the the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians conquering different peoples and attributing their success to idols. And so the implied question is, why would you allow idolatry against yourself? Who here in the room is created? All of us. Who's the creator? God. There's but one creator. God, you've entered into relationship with us. You've created us. Why would you allow people to worship false gods? It's kind of like this. Suppose you're married and you discover that your spouse is having an affair. They're sleeping around on you with someone else. And you know it. This isn't a secret anymore. You know it. And you have the power and the ability to stop it. What would you do? Of course you'd stop it. It would eat you up. It would destroy your soul if you didn't. You wouldn't just say, oh, whatever. You'd want to stop it at all costs because that person is violating the promise, the vows, the covenant that they've made with you. Well, is God not all powerful? He is. Is God not sovereign? He is. So if God looks down at one of the people he's created that he's in relationship with, and he's like, hey, you're sleeping around with another God. You're worshiping another God. And you know that God is powerful. There's no secrets with God. Why would God not step in and stop that right away? Again, these are some of the questions that Habakkuk asks of God. What are some of the questions that you'd like to ask God? Here are a couple, here are a couple questions I would like to ask God. You want to hear them? I've read Psalm 139.13. Psalm 139.13 says that God knitted me together when I was in my mother's womb. Genesis 1.27 says that I am made in the image and likeness of God. I'm not God, but I'm made in the image and likeness of God. And God intricately knit me together. That's a word that expresses creativity and craftsmanship and attentiveness. God knit me together in my mother's womb. Before I came into the world yelling and screaming, God already had his hand upon me. God created me. So one of the questions I would like to ask of God is God, why do you allow human beings to take sharp knives and cut up the babies that you have knit together in their mother's wombs? If you're powerful, why do you allow the abortion industry to slaughter untold numbers of babies that you have knit together in their mother's womb around the world? You could stop it, God. Why don't you stop it? This is the question that rattles around in my head. 
Another question that rattles around in my head as a man that values truth and whose life has been transformed by truth and whose life continues to be transformed by truth is why do you allow millions of people around the world to worship false religions and false gods? They say that 1.8 billion people on earth worship and follow the false prophet Muhammad. I can't even count that high. They say that 1.4 billion people on earth believe in the philosophies and religion of Hinduism. You're just born and reborn. You're, you're born a cricket. If you're a really good cricket, maybe the next time around you're going to be born a cat. If you're a really good cat, maybe the next time around you'll be born a human. If you're a really bad human, the next time around you're going to be born whatever, a snake. It's just round and why do you allow people to believe in those lies? Why do you allow 488 million people in the world to follow the false teachings of the Buddha? Why don't you just stop it all? Why don't you intervene? You're holy. You're righteous. Another question I'd like to ask God is, Why do you allow liars to delude other people with such obvious falsehoods? Why do you allow people to govern nations, to be elected to political offices who are liars? Why do you allow liars to teach our children in public schools? Why do you allow liars to teach in some of the chairs of our faculty at our universities and to instill within people's minds ideas like, well, you're just a product of chance. Or there's no such thing as right or wrong. Like, why do you allow that, God? When you're still very much sitting on your throne. The first 11 verses of Habakkuk ask the question, why do we suffer? Or from chapter 112 following, Habakkuk becomes very fascinated with the question, why does God suffer? So much abuse. So much blasphemy. So much disrespect. And now we're into chapter two. And chapter two is really a testament of a man with great faith. Chapter two essentially teaches us, be prepared to wait for a full answer to your question. Be prepared to wait. I'm going to give you some hints. God tells us in his word. I'm going to kind of give you some clues, but be prepared to wait for a full answer to the question Why is my holiness being abused? So look at chapter two, verse one, where it says, this is Habakkuk speaking. He asks God these poignant questions. And then he says, I will take my stand at a watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, this gives us an insight into Habakkuk's motives. Habakkuk, even though he's asking God very real questions, very practical questions, is still a man of faith. He asks God, but then he indicates that he's actually prepared to wait for an answer. So he uses the illustration of like a soldier standing at a watch station. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for God to answer me. And then I'm going to start thinking about some additional questions I may have for God. 
He is asked and now he waits. This church is the essence of faith. What is faith? Faith is all about waiting. Faith is all about hoping. Faith is all about the assurance of things that we have not yet seen. How can a person be assured of something they have not yet seen? How can we be assured that God is going to one day deal with evildoers? How can we be assured that God is going to one day redeem his people? I have never seen God's day book. I've never thumbed through God's day book. Oh, I just discovered on this day, at this time, in this place, God is finally going to redeem me. I don't know when God's going to redeem us. I don't know when God's going to finally deal with evil. So how can I be a man of faith? How can I be a man of hope if I don't know when God's going to do this? Because I don't need to know the timing if I have met the God that owns the day book. If you know God and you know something about the character of God and you believe in the character of God, then you are able to be a man or woman of faith, not because you know how or when God's going to act, but because you know who God is. So let's talk a minute about some of God's attributes. What are some things about God that we must believe in order to continue to grow as men and women of faith? Here's one. We must believe that God is sovereign over all things. We must believe that. We can never relinquish that. God is in control of every aspect of life. God is sovereign over everything. In fact, if you think about it, God can't even call himself God if he's not sovereign. By definition, God is sovereign over all things. Secondly, we need to remind ourselves that God is holy. And the fact that God is holy or absolutely pure guarantees that God will deal with evil one day. Somehow God will deal with evil because he's holy. We can also remind ourselves that God is good. I've thought about this a lot because I remember when I was younger, I, you know, I'd read my Bible and I'd see all the do's and don'ts of the Bible. And I thought, why did God say that this is good and this is bad? Like I'd kind of like him to take this thing that he says is bad and throw it onto the good list. Like, what's the basis for God saying, don't do this or do that? It's the goodness of God. Because God is good, he always has our best interest at heart. So even when we're about to do something that we think is good and God's like, no, that's not good. I know that's going to destroy you. That's going to mess up your thinking. That's going to destroy your relationships. That's going to ruin your conscience. You're like, okay, I guess you are the divine engineer. You are the creator and I'm the creator. What do I know? So we choose to rest in the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God. These are all things that Habakkuk acknowledges. God, you are holy. You are the Lord, meaning you are the master, meaning that you are sovereign. You're in control of all things. Now, having stated these things, God finally replies to Habakkuk's second complaint. And here's what he says in verse two and following. The Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. So God's like, I'm going to tell you a few things. I'm going to give you a vision of the future. Now, I want you to write it down very plainly. 
And I want you to put it on tablets. Why tablets? Because tablets are more durable than leather, which they would have written on back in Habakkuk's day. Tablets are more durable than papyrus, which they would have written on in Habakkuk's day. So what does that tell us? The fact that God is delivering a message to them and he wants it stamped on tablets means that it's probably going to be a little while before the vision comes true. You're going to have to wait a little bit. So I want it on a durable, solid piece of writing material because you're going to have to wait a little bit. And then the phraseology, so he may run who reads it. There's some different perspectives on this, but this probably is a reference to someone who is like a herald or a messenger, kind of a mailman who runs out. God wants Habakkuk to take this message and deliver it to all of the people of God. He wants everybody to hear it, what God is about to say. Now, much like chapter one, God here also challenges the assumption that he is passive because when you suffer or when you see God's name being trashed and bashed, it's easy to think, God, why are you so passive? God challenges that assumption. And he says, actually, I'm at work in the world in ways that you don't understand. And I'm going to make it super plain to you in time why I'm delaying, why I'm doing things the way that I've decided to do things. I'm going to make it super plain. And then you're like, okay, Lord, so so tell us, when are you going to do it? When are you going to conquer evil? Look at verse three. God's like, here it is. Here's my answer. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Like what? So you're not going to actually tell us yet? No, but I have an appointed time. History is linear. It's not cyclical. History is linear. And God is orchestrating things throughout history according to his plan, according to his agenda. And in God's day book, there's a date that he already has circled where he's going to reveal to his people why he is doing what he's doing. You got to wait for the appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. He says, I don't lie. I don't tell fibs. I don't tell falsehoods. If it seems slow and you're like, yeah, it kind of seems sort of slow, Lord. Wait for it. Wait for it. It will surely come. That word surely, what does that, um, what does that indicate? Certainty. It will surely come, but you got to wait for it. It will not delay. You're like, well, it seems like a delay. God's like, well, my timeline's different than yours. And in my timeline, I can tell you, I'm going to one day deal with all evil, evil toward my people and evil that's directed towards myself. So a couple things. God reminds us that in time, he will tell us and reveal to us his full plan, but it's at an appointed time. And it may not be in our lifetimes. We may have to wait a little longer yet. It may be next week. But in the end, God will have his way. Now, one of the things that we have the advantage of, because we're living in like 2019 now, is we actually know what happens to the Chaldeans back in the 6th century. We know they come in and they beat up the, Ju- the Judites. We know they take them into captivity. 
We know that they get stuck in Babylon for 70 years, but guess what? We also know that God conquers them. We also know that one of the Babylonian kings turned into a crazy, insane animal for seven years because he thought he was God and God breaks him down and literally steals his mind. By the way, the further away you get from truth, the nuttier you become. You wonder why are people so insane? Because they're further and further away from truth. They don't think like God. So they start to become nutty and make all kinds of crazy decisions and advocate all sorts of worldviews. And you're like, how could you possibly think that? Because you've abandoned the source of truth. This is why the world is going crazy, folks. Because people have walked away from truth. And the lesson to me, by the way, is if I don't want to become crazy, I need to spend some time in God's word. Allowing God to clear up my ignorance, to get rid of the cobwebs, to deal with my stinking thinking. And then, he says, it might seem slow to you, but wait, I won't delay. When we were kids, we used to go on these long trips. And this was before we had air conditioning. And we had those cars with like vinyl seats. Anybody remember those? So you're like driving along and you're in the back seat and you're asking the question like that every kid born before the year 2000 has asked his or her parents. When are we going to get there? The kids nowadays don't ask those questions because they have iPods and iPhones and earbuds and all sorts of entertainment systems in the car. But back in the day, I'm telling you, long trips were like El Boersville. And these vinyl seats would heat up and the smell of like hot vinyl would fill the car and it would make my stomach, make me all feel kind of nauseous. And I'd try to like roll down the window and then you just get like hundred degree air blasting and it wasn't fun. But I never remember my parents complaining about long trips because they were mature and I wasn't. They knew where we were going. They were able to wait. They were patient. They were excited But the immature kids in the back were like, when are we going to get there yet? We're not yet fully mature. God is impeccably mature. God knows the time. God knows the arrival date. God knows when he's going to break through and wipe out evildoers. God knows when he's going to redeem his people. And he's like, hey, kids, why don't you just trust me? Why don't you wait? Because when we get to our final destination, it's going to all be worth it. This is a call for us to grow up. Like, okay, Lord, well, still tell me. Tell me when you're going to do it, how you're going to do it. Like, what's your advice for me, God, before you like, come through with your plan? Here's the correct response to suffering. You ready for this? Drum roll. What's God say? I'm not going to tell you yet. So wait. I'm not going to tell you yet. So wait. Now, how might we possibly respond to that? We might say, oh, come on. (laughs) I've been waiting long enough. I, I need an answer or I don't think I can make it another day. Is God not enough? Is God's presence not enough? Is God's sovereignty and holiness and goodness not enough? If it's not enough for you, there's nothing more. Because that's all we have, but that's all we need. 
Another possible response would be to say to God, well, then I will no longer follow you, God, because clearly you're incompetent. Clearly you're incompetent. And how many people do we know who have professed faith with their mouth, but whose faith has been shipwrecked on the rocks of suffering because they're like, if you don't come through now, God, I don't care about your appointed time. I have an appointed time and it's now. And if you don't come through now, then you can forget about me following you. We can name person after person after person who has had that response to God. But the response that God wants us to have to his word is, well, then Lord, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to wait some more. Because I know you're sovereign and I know you're holy and I know you're good. It's kind of like this rough analogy. You know, someone that's a person of integrity and someone else tells you something negative about them. What do you immediately think? Uh, I don't think I'm going to believe that because I know that person. If I'm in a relationship with you and I've conducted myself with integrity and righteousness and someone tells you a lie about me, the first thing you're going to think is, I don't, I don't know. I know Aaron. I, I don't think he would say that. I don't think he would do that. I'm going to be suspicious of the story that's being told. And you would protect my reputation. If I heard a lie about you and I'm like, no, I don't think so. Like this person walks with the Lord. This is a person of prayer. This is a person that's committed to the word. I don't think that's necessarily true. Well, how much more can we trust in the character of God when God is incapable of sin? God's incapable of breaking his promises. God says in my appointed time, I will deal with it. And in the meanwhile, one of the reasons why God allows suffering is he's using it to refine us and cause us to grow up. And so in response to that, now this is what faith looks like in action. Habakkuk says in verse four, behold, his soul is puffed up. Speaking of the Babylonian king, it is not upright within him, but in contrast to the evildoer, what does he say about the believer? The righteous shall live by his faith. This is such a powerful verse and such a core verse that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 repeats it. The righteous shall live by faith. This is core folks. This is ground zero to your entire life. The righteous is going to be puffed. The unrighteous is going to be puffed up and arrogant and they're going to have some success. But we will live by faith. And our faith is not wishy-washy. It's not sentimental drivel. It is surety because we have encountered the God who is sovereign over all things. That's praiseworthy. Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, which is a word for like the grave and the underworld and hell all at once. Like death, he never has enough. Again, speaking of the Babylonian king, he gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And again, this might cause the person of weak faith to think, well, evil is winning. But then the call to be a person of faith and wait. It means that God will not contend with a person who is puffed up and unable to trust in his divine plan. But the one who trusts in God will one day be redeemed. You can take that to the bank because it's absolutely true. 
Verse five assures the believer of the inevitable downfall of the Babylonian king, thereby solidifying the faith of the unbelievers. God has a planned church to destroy evil and evildoers. But in the meantime, he will use them to refine you and me. He will use evil in this world to increase our faith. He will use evil in this world so that we are forced to wait upon him. And our faith increases because I know I live in the same world that you do. I don't spend time in some ivory tower during the week. I live in the same world that you do. And I know this, that when life is tough, I read more, I pray more, I depend more. And when life is easy, I can just kind of coast by. God uses the hammer of suffering to refine us and to help us to grow up. So know this. Here are some things for you to write down and take home. Know this. Number one, you can ask God any question you want, but you may not be told an immediate answer. Number two, his person should be enough to foster faith, even if you don't know his plan. His person is enough to foster faith in you, even when you may not know his plan. And number three, the wicked will one day perish and all things will be made right. They will be made right. And so trust in the Lord. I want to end by telling you two stories from my own personal experience of how God has worked very graciously in my life. One took place in 1996 and the other took place in 2005. In 1996, on December the 20th, I received a phone call from my father. And he said, Aaron, your youngest brother, Jason, has been involved in a catastrophic accident. Two of his friends were killed in the car and you better get to London really quick. We got in our car and I think top speed was 135 kilometers an hour in our little Ford Escort. And we went up to London we were there for 10 days and I walked in, there's my brother beat up, bashed up. He'd been in this car accident. Two of his friends had been killed. He was brain damaged because his head collided with his friend next door and it killed his friend. And I saw him laying there and he's the youngest of six kids. And the doctors came in and met with our family shortly thereafter. And he says, they said, he's probably going to die. Best case scenario. If he survives, he's going to be in a vegetative state for the rest of his life. So just kind of picture that in your head, 15 in a vegetative state for like the next 50 or 60 years. Or like, maybe you should pull the plug. Like, no, we're going to wait upon the Lord for a little bit to see what God has in store. Since then, my brother has been restored to much of his former health. He's still disabled. He he, he can't get married. He, He doesn't work. His right side of his body is partially paralyzed, but God has used him to see other people in our family and beyond come to Jesus Christ and have their faith revved up. Now, in all of that, I remember thinking to myself, Lord, why did you allow this to happen? How can you not think that question? Why did you allow this to happen? And God very graciously and very kindly spoke this truth into my life. Wait upon the Lord. And in faith, I received that. And that was a huge blessing to me 
I mourned it for many years. I remember a couple years later driving to seminary in Plymouth, Michigan, and I'd be coming back at like 11, 1130 at night on the dark highways. And Jason would cross my mind and I would think to myself, he can never get married, can never have kids, never finish high school, never work a regular job. There's pain in all of that. And there's a sense of loss. But when you wait upon the Lord, the Lord has a way of bringing out of destruction, beauty untold. Huge lesson for me. Fast forward ahead to 2005. Susie had just given birth to our fifth child and had some major medical complications and was on life support. Was given about a 13 to 14% chance of surviving. This isn't like the Western world with all modern medicine. She's essentially probably not going to make it. You're in the hospital all night. The next day I go in to see her. She's laying there. She was looking at me, but she was on life support. And as I looked at my wife, I remember thinking, this is, this is it. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm gonna be, tomorrow I'm going to be a single father of five kids. And I was kind of overcome by it, as you can imagine. And she was looking at me. So I turned away and I went out in the hallway And as I was in the hallway, I remember feeling like I was at a crossroads. Am I going to trust and wait? Or am I going to hightail it out of here and abandon God? And again, the Lord, by his grace, gave me a gift, a gift of faith. And I remember thinking to myself, I am going to wait upon the Lord. If you want to take her back, Lord, she's yours. And God was so good to me because as I was standing there with my back turned to Susie, a physician came into the room and gave us the good news that she was on the upswing and would recover from that. The Lord didn't make me wait long. But in both of those circumstances, God spoke a word into my life. Aaron, if you're going to survive this perilous journey of life, and in this life, folks, there is going to be some great pain. Sometimes it's going to be medical. Sometimes it's going to be downright demonic attack. Sometimes it's going to be depression or anxiety. If you are going to make it in this life, you must learn to wait upon God. Even if you don't have the answers, if you know the God who is sovereign and holy and good, and you choose to believe that he has the world in his hands, then you will wait upon him. And in his good timing, God will reveal to you in his appointed time why he's allowed you to suffer. And out of the ashes and the brokenness and the rustiness, God will bring about his redemptive purposes in your life. So wait upon the Lord and trust him and you will be blessed.